I want you to cast your minds back to a time in your childhood, which I'm absolutely sure would have occurred at least once in your life, where you defiantly and assuredly said, I am going to wear this today, and mum and dad said, no, you're not going to wear that, but why? Because I said so. Because you're not going out looking like that. Or, or maybe it was, oh, but mom, dad, I want to go here. No, you can't go there because I said so. Or it's not good for you. Oh, but mom and dad, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. No, you can't. And do you remember the feeling as a child hearing those words and collapsing in a heap? And and you kind of thought those words were an all-out assault or an attack on a front on all your dreams and your hopes and your desires. But I want to do this. This is what I want. And mum and dad are telling me that's not good for me. Now, when I was a boy, uh, one of my best friends was way, way bigger than me. So that meant I often got some of his clothes or his shoes. And I liked them because he was quite cool. So I got to to wear his shoes. And one Christmas holidays from school, his mum was clearing out all of the cupboards and I got given a pair of flip-flops. And I wanted to wear these flip-flops. They were cool flip-flops. And, but the trouble is it was beginning of January. And mum and dad said, no, James, it's minus two outside. You'll get frostbite. But I want to wear these flip-flops. I, oh, I know the frustration and I know the annoyance. I want these flip-flops. No, James, that's not good for you. Now, maybe you experienced that with your kids, or you remember that being a child. You know what that feels like. Now, here's the thing. We might say to ourselves, well, we graduate from that. We graduate from that, and we can see what's best for us, so we always do the right thing, don't we? We we always do the right thing every time. We know. We know. We've got a good view of everything. We know what's best for us, so we can say no when we need to say no, and yes when we need to say yes. Is that right? No, I see shaking heads. That's not. You see, we don't graduate from that, do we? We know there are things in our lives that we know are unwise, plain wrong, and against what God would have for us and what he's designed us to be. And it's one of those fundamental truths of the Christian life that if we get too far removed from it, things start to fall apart and not make sense. The thing is, when we become Christians, when we come to know Jesus, There's that beautiful truth welling up from within us that God has made us alive, that he's made us a new creation. That on the cross, Jesus died for our sin. He swallowed up the punishment that we deserved and he rose from the dead. He defeated death and that new life is ours. Now the Christian life doesn't say, as soon as you believe that, you suddenly become perfect in every single way. That's not how the Christian life works. It's not you are perfect before God and therefore your behavior falls in line and follows suit. What happens? Yes, we're perfect in God's sight because we have the righteousness of Jesus. But doesn't it take an awful long time, in fact, the rest of our lives and more, to figure out what holiness actually looks like and what it is that God would want for us and how he's designed us to live? Now, when we want something and desire something, and yearn for something, and long for something that isn't good for us, and isn't what God has said is for us, what's that called? It's called temptation. It's called temptation. And that's what we're going to be studying this morning. We're going to be looking at this whole idea of temptation. 
recognizing that even though we can be righteous in God's sight, even though that's true, there is still a sin nature within us that wants to do the things that God hasn't designed us for. But one of the big questions we ask then is, okay, I know I'm there. I know every human being knows this. Every human being knows the longing. We know the yearning. We know the desire to do things which we know will either hurt us or other people. What do we do when we face that? That's the big question, isn't it? We, we know what it's like. We're united in this room, in that experience. But what do we do when we face that draw, when we have that pull, whether it is just a slight subconscious urge or an all-out burning that you just can't get your mind off of that and you're just locked in? What do you do when you're in that space? What do you do when you face that draw of temptation? How do we respond? Is there a strategy? Does God give us anything? How do we face temptation? Well, thankfully, the Bible gives us something. It gives us a lot. But we're going to be studying James chapter 1. So grab those Bibles. Let's get them open. James chapter 1. You can pick up these black hardback Bibles on the ends of the pews. The page is going to be 1,215, I think. Give that a look. Uh, You can get it open in your own Bibles. If you've got your phones, get that open too. James chapter 1 is where we're going to be. I'll give you a moment or two to turn there. How do we face the giant of temptation? Now, before we get in and read this chunk of James chapter 1 that we're going to be studying this morning, I just kind of have to say a couple of things and lay some groundwork. You see, the thing is, for a lot of people, when I say the word temptation, you're already beginning to sweat. The heat rises in here. Oh, I know what that feels like. I feel like he's going to be talking right at me this morning. You know why you feel that? It's because we all experience this. So this morning isn't about me adding to the weight of shame and guilt and condemnation on your shoulders. I'm pretty convinced that's already there for a lot of you. What this is about this morning is being strategic. It's being constructive. It's looking at what James offers us in light of temptation and saying, all right, we know where we are, but how can we strive after holiness? How can we strive after what God would have for us? How do we do that? So I want to be constructive. I also recognize there's a lot of people in here who are going to be thinking, right, I gave into temptation and I continue to give into temptation and I feel numb. And there's going to be people in here saying, I gave into temptation And I'm hurting today. I'm crushing myself. I feel the shame. I feel the guilt. I'm fed up. I wish I could change my heart. I wish I could change my desires and my longings. I'm just done. And then there's going to be some people in here who you've fallen so much into temptation that you feel despondent. I mean, beyond discouraged. Just feeling, I don't know what to do. I've done everything I possibly can and I I just haven't got anything left in the tank. I'm just a little bit stuck. So so wherever you are this morning, I'm hoping this passage in James that we're going to study is constructive, that it's strategic and we see what James is offering us and we put this into play to see so we know how God would have us fight temptation, how James directs his readers. This is to provide a balm for those of you who are hurting and a wake-up call to those who have gotten numb. So James offers us a strategy. So let's read. We're going to be starting verse 13 winding our way through to verse 18. So let's start verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, let's go set a little bit of groundwork here. Let's do some back, background history work. Who's James? Who's the guy writing this? Well, James, we studied this a couple of years ago here, but by way of reminder, James, we concluded, out of the four Jameses we find in the New Testament, he's the one who's, he's the one who's Jesus' half-younger brother. Now, when we read the Gospels and we read through Jesus' life, we find a moment where Jesus' family comes to him and says, Jesus, you're out of your mind. So, So we concluded when we were studying this that likely in that family cohort that came to call out Jesus, James was probably in there. So he's most assuredly a skeptic at some point. Now, we know at some point, James then becomes a Christian. He believes that his older half-brother, Jesus, is the Son of God and came to die for our rescue. That's what he is. So James goes from skeptic to follower, the guy who doubted and didn't believe, to the guy who becomes actually quite a prominent church leader in first century church life. But who's he writing to? Well, he's writing to an audience who are under pressure. He's writing to an audience who feel the heat rising from the world around them. He's writing to a bunch of Christians who are saying, look, I I know Jesus is the Son of God, and I know he is truth, and I know he is the way, and I know he is the life. I know this, but I'm feeling pressure from the world around me. The people in my life, the structures in society, everybody seems to be breathing down our necks. And so James writes to them in that pressure. So he begins by saying, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. I mean, he wastes no time to talk about the pressure that they're facing. So he weaves his way through these trials, giving instruction and help and encouragement in that trial. And then he begins to talk about temptation. And you kind of think to yourself, right, trials, yep, 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 temptation. Why does he make a sudden jump to temptation while talking about trials? I think it's this, that you know this. That when the heat rises in life, when the pressure goes up, when things don't quite make sense, where things aren't going the way you want it to go, it is ten times easier to fall into something that God would not have for you. We know what it's like when we face those confusing times. When we're tired, when we're fed up, when the loneliness just seems to creep in and we don't know what to do, it is much easier to fall into temptation. So that's why James, immediately after going through this instruction on trials, says, right, let's talk about temptation, because we know how easy that is when life gets difficult, and let's talk about that. So so what he does is then provides a three-part strategy to deal with temptation. So here's what we're going to be looking at, is James's three-part strategy for temptation. Now this slide should be good for some of you visual learners, and we're going to fill in the blanks. That's supposed to be an eye, that's an eye. So here's what it's going to be. We're going to be look back look forward, and look up. That's a three-part strategy, okay? We're going to study that. Look back, look forward, and look up. And we'll fill in the blanks as we go. Let's go back. First couple of verses, a verse that we read, verse 13 and verse 14. Interesting. 
Let no one say when he is tempted. Okay, so don't say. I am being tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Okay, let's take a step back there. What's James saying? James is saying, when you feel that pull, when you feel that desire, when you feel that longing to be satisfied with something that you know is not good for you or what God has designed you for, don't walk around saying, God made me do that. Now, now I wonder in his audience, we've got a bunch of people who are falling into temptation, falling into sin, and they're seeing the effects, and maybe they're walking around saying, well, that's just the way God made us. We've got these desires, we've got these longings, and we fell for that because it's God's fault. He did it. But James says, no, don't walk around saying that. Why? Two reasons. Because God's not, got nothing to do with evil, and God's not going to lead you into evil. There's the two reasons. But what's the alternative in verse 14? But everybody is lured and enticed by his own desires. So, so James seems to be saying right here, don't play the blame game. When you fall into temptation... When you do something, when that draw and that longing is so ferocious that it consumes you, you end up diving headlong into it, don't come out of it saying, well, it's not my fault. There were other factors at play. God did it. There were the circumstances, people around me who did it. So James is saying, right, here's the first strategy in facing temptation. Look back and take responsibility. Look back and take responsibility. Really, really tough thing to do. It's a very brave thing to do. It's a very courageous thing to do. I'll illustrate it like this. Way back in the late 1930s, one of my favorite characters in history was firing on all cylinders. His name was Winston Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill, he he was a mixed, turbulent man, but the right man that England needed at that point in history. Now, in the mid and early 1930s, there was... Nazi Germany growing in the central parts of Europe, wasn't it? And then by the end of the 1930s, they'd grown so strong and so dangerous and such a threat that Winston Churchill was sounding this alarm bell to everyone in his government. Don't you see them growing? Can't you see what's going on? Except the government around him was made up of upper-class British gentlemen. And so what they did was kind of work at a very leisurely pace throughout the week, And then, at the weekends, what did they do? They went off to their country homes. They couldn't be reached by telephone. They couldn't be touched because they were away for the weekend. And Churchill was getting really frustrated because he was saying, hang on a second, you're going away for the weekend, and at the weekend, Hitler is taking these countries. Can we just wake up and see the emergency at hand? But they all kind of said, no, we're going away for the weekend. Why? Because they didn't want to take responsibility. This is what William Manchester, in his book, The Last Lion, writes about the situation. To Churchill's exasperation, Britain's ruling class continued to take weekends in the country, while Hitler takes countries in the weekends. Suggestions that country weekends be shortened or that provisions be made for emergencies were met with icy stares. Britain's leaders detested to be pushed. Haste was somehow regarded as un-British. The ruling class was not called the leisured class for nothing. Churchill was just getting so frustrated because they seemed to be shirking responsibility, saying, there's nothing to do with us. Somebody else can figure it out. What does James say to his audience? Don't do that. Don't flee responsibility. Don't try and wriggle away. Don't try and get off the hook. The first step 
of dealing with temptation properly is not looking at all of the other factors and saying they did it, God did it, that circumstance did it. We have to take responsibility. It's the only healthy first step to take. But how does that look in our life when we, when we flee responsibility? What does that? Probably goes something like this. Well, God just made me that way. Or God didn't show up when I needed him. He didn't give me a way out, and so I just dived in headlong. Or maybe it's, it's like this. Uh, she made me so angry, that's why I did it. Or I just was lonely and nobody showed up, that's why I did it. Or he seduced me, that's why I went there. Or, or it could be oh, my accountability partner didn't text me this morning. They text me every day. And because they didn't text me, that's why I fell. That's why I gave into temptation. Oh, I just had a really hard time at work. They'd been hard. The boss had been nasty to me. They had been nasty to me. And that's why. You see, we love to play the blame game. But what is James saying? The first healthy step to facing this is taking responsibility. But he provides us with yet more of this strategy. So we're going to look forward now. Look at verse 14 again, 15 and 16. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now look at this. What is James doing? He's providing this this knock-on effect, this chain, this stack of dominoes, let's say. Goes temptation, goes desire, goes sin, and then goes death. Interesting. You see what James is trying to do here? It's kind of like what you would do on Google Earth when you zoom out and you get the bigger picture. Move move out from the village, move out from the city, and see the bigger county, see the bigger country, see what's going on. Move out, zoom out, so you can see the bigger picture and see where that sin leads. But what does he say? There's desires, there's temptations, and when you give in to those desires and those temptations, there's sin. And what does sin do? Sin brings death. Is he saying a literal instantaneous death? No, but we know sin brings death. It hurts, it fractures, it tears apart, it tears down, it destroys. That's the nature of sin. It hurts us and it hurts other people. So James is saying, second strategy is to look forward and to see the consequences. Now, now we know what it's like to be in those moments, right, when we feel those blinkers. Our minds get so locked in, we can't see anything else. We get, we get those blinkers on and we see what's going on in front of us and we just can't see the consequences. James is saying, zoom out, zoom out, see the biggest picture, the bigger picture, look downstream, look down the road and see where it leads. Where does it lead? Guilt, shame, empty, hollow, hurt. See the bigger picture, see the consequences. That's James's second point, see the consequences. Let me, let me illustrate this a little bit. Because I don't think James is saying, suppress your desires. I don't think that's what he's saying. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. This summer, my family and I are going to go on holiday to see my wife's family in Washington State. I'm going to make you feel really jealous right now. And we're going for a three-week holiday to go and rest and see her family. They get some quality time with the kids. That means I'm going to be with my in-laws for a while. And I know they're probably listening in. So I have to speak very kindly about my in-laws. I, lo- I love you to pieces if, you, if you're listening. I know. <laughs> no, they're awesome. We do love them. And what I love to do is spend time with my father-in-law and go fishing with him. 
And there's a few places we like to go fishing to catch cutthroat trout, rainbow trout, brown trout. And sometimes if we catch a big one, we'll cook it up and eat it. Now, my favorite place to go fishing is a really hard place to reach. It's a big mountain lake kind of tucked away in a hard-to-reach spot. And so what happens in the winter is there's a glacier that kind of forms and there's snow. And then in the springtime, all of that melts and goes into this giant lake. So what you get is a really deep lake with crystal blue, greeny water being needle cold. I mean, you can't really jump in because it hurts so much. But you know what that means? It means for good fishing. Really nice, tough fish. I love that kind of stuff. And in this lake, you have brown trout. So what we like to do is work really hard to get a brown trout, reel that brown trout in, bring it onto the side of the lake, gut it, clean it up, wrap it in foil with some lemon and butter, and then put it on the fire and then eat it for lunch. And it's fantastic. Hopefully we get to do that. But imagine, imagine there's a family of fish at the bottom of this lake. Now, I know fish can't talk, but just imagine with me, okay. Imagine there's a little brown trout, and there's a mummy and daddy brown trout. And, and, And little brown trout is ready to face lake life. And there's a few dangers and some facts that little trout needs to know. So mother and father trout give little brown trout a few pointers and lessons about the facts of lake life. And so here's what Mother Brown Trout and Father Brown Trout say. Right, little brown trout, you need to recognize that there are hooks in this lake. You need to know that from time to time, hooks are going to be dipped in, and they're going to be covered in bait. And you're going to look at that bait, and it's going to look delicious. It's going to look satisfying. It's going to be golden and sparkling. And it's going to seem so tasty, so satisfying, so fulfilling, and all that you need. So you need to know that those baits are coming in, but recognize behind the bait there's a hook. And when you bite that bait, you're going to bite the hook. And you're going to be reeled in. And James is going to be delighted. (laughs) And he's going to cut you up put you on the fire and eat you, and he's going to be so happy that he got to eat you. But little brown trout, you need to see the consequences of biting that hook. You need to see what's going to happen. Also, little brown trout, there's another thing you need to know. You have a desire to eat. You have, that's why that bait seems so attractive. You have desires within you. You have longings. You have yearnings. You've been made to want stuff. But little brown trout, you are to satisfy those longings on eating those delicious insects that fall into the lake and then sink. And you're to eat other little small fish as well. That's what you're made to do. So you should satisfy your desires and your longings on what you're supposed to eat. Don't buy the bait. I know it looks good and I know it looks satisfying, but you see where it's going to lead. What James is saying to his audience is not necessarily that the desires are bad. Human beings are creatures that have desires and longings. But the question is, where are those longings going to be satisfied? Way too often, Christians get told, suppress those desires, get rid of them, and become something of a zombie. No. Those desires are there. But the big question is this. Where are those desires going to be satisfied? You bite the bait of temptation, where does it lead? Leads to a place... It often hurts. It leads to a place where you're riddled with guilt, shame, regret. It hurts you and it hurts others. You see, when you bite that bait, see the broader consequences. Look further down the stream, further down the road. Most of us in this room, let's be really honest. There's no point coming to church unless we're going to be honest. 
Most of us in this room know what it's like to bite that bait, to see the bait, to see that it seems satisfying, to see that it seems fulfilling. But that's all you need and you'll be better off as soon as you bite it. But we know what it's like to suddenly fill the hook inside of that bait. We know what it's like to be reeled in. We know what it's like to feel the condemnation that sin brings. We know what it's like to feel the kind of death that sin brings. We know the crushing feeling of guilt. We know the crushing feeling of shame and regret. Oh, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I could go back. I would do it differently. Only I could have seen that this would be the consequences for doing that. But that's what James is saying. Step back. I know it's attractive. I know it's allure. I know you have desires. But look forward and see the consequences that come from that. But he's going to offer one more, far more liberating part of this strategy. Let's read verse 16, 17, and 18 here. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought you forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now you kind of read that and think initially to yourself, what has that got to do with temptation? I mean, he's provided two very practical steps to deal with it. Look back and take responsibility. Look forward and see the consequences. Why does James suddenly shift gear and talk about God's goodness? Why does he talk about God's goodness in giving gifts? Why does he talk about God's goodness in being the father of lights, in being the one there's no variation or change, or the one who brought us forth and gave us first fruits? Why does James talk about goodness? Well, that's his, first, his, his third strategy, third part of the strategy. Let's look back, look forward, look up, and don't lose sight of God. It's this third thing, look up and don't lose sight of God. Now, now let's look at these elements of God's goodness here. What do we have? We have the one, he gives good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above. So he's a good gift giver. He gives what we need. He's the one we go to. And then what else does he have? He's the father of lights. What does that mean? Well, I think he's talking back to Genesis chapter 1, when, when, when God created the lights in the sky, the stars, the sun, the moon. James is saying that the universe is not just a bunch of clanging atoms randomly together. Actually, God is beyond this. There is a guidance. There is a care. There is a sovereignty. There is a satisfaction in him. It's father of lights. And what does he say? There's no variation. There's no change. What does that mean? He's dependable. He's not inconsistent like we are. He is consistent. He doesn't give in where we give in. He doesn't fall short where we fall short. And lastly, what's the last bit of his goodness? Of his own will, he brought us forth. What does that mean? He gave us new birth. What's the last bit? To be a kind of first fruits. What does that mean? Well, you know, on a fruit tree, you get the first fruits. What's that? It's a guarantee of more to come. You're right, you brought, he's given you new birth. He's given you new life. He's made you a new creation and given you a guarantee of what is to come. Here's what James is saying. Focus on God's goodness. See his kindness. See that he doesn't change. 
See that he's not inconsistent where we are. See where he is perfect and holy, where we can be decidedly imperfect and very unholy. And that's a very, very good thing for us to hear this morning because we know temptation and we know we fall short and we know we get it wrong. But the good news is we have a God who never gets it wrong. We have a God who doesn't change where we change. And we have a God who's in control when we lose control. And we have a God who gives us new life even when we don't deserve it. You see what James is saying is don't lose sight of God's goodness when the raging desires of temptation descend on your life. When it rears its ugly head, fix your gaze on God's goodness. Hear that? Fix your gaze on God's goodness in the midst of that fiery temptation. You know what it feels like. You ever stood on the side of the road and had someone drive past and you wave frantically at them? Oh, it's my mate, it's my mate, yeah, hi, hi, hi. And then they don't see you. And so they just kind of fix gaze and they drive past and you're almost falling into the road trying to get them to see you and you look very silly when they drive past and they don't wave at you. And then you see them a few days later and you say, I saw you and you didn't wave and you were just in your own little world. You, you all know that. You see that focus that that person has. You see that focus when everyone else is waving around, look at me, look at me, look at me. James is saying, fix Your gaze on God's goodness. Why? Why fix our gaze on God's goodness? Because when we fix our gaze on God's goodness, it has an expulsive power over our temptations. When we fix our gazes on God's goodness, it has a repellent power on the kinds of things that threaten to lure us into places that aren't good for us. To see God's goodness to know God's goodness, to receive his goodness, that in spite of our failings, when we get it wrong so much, he remains good to us. He is good. So James's third part of this strategy is don't lose sight of God's goodness. That's why it is so difficult to fall into temptation after you've been praying about God's goodness, after saying grace around the table before you eat. While you've been at church with other people and you've captivated yourself with God's goodness, when you've been in community group, when you've been spending time with other Christians. Why? Why is it harder to fall into temptation then? Because God's goodness is having that expulsive power on your temptations. I want you to see God's goodness above all this morning in this passage. I want you to see that James's strategy is highly practical. That we look back and we take responsibility because that has to be the first step. We look forward and we see the consequences. That's a deterrent. But the best one of all is to look up and to see that God is good, to see that he's satisfying, to see that he's sufficient, to see that he's good and kind and able. I don't know where you are this morning. There's some of you who are weighed down by giving in to temptation. Some of us have become numb and don't really care anymore. Some of us are just fed up and are done with it. Wherever you are, I want you to see James's strategy right here. Implement it. See it. Don't, don't forget it just after we've had lunch together. Go home. Write this down. Recognize these things. Do what it takes to put the goodness of God front and center in your sight. Let's pray together and then we will sing our last song. God, we're grateful that your word speaks so clearly into the realness of our lives. God, you know us, you know our needs, you get us. 
And even in our failings, even in our falling, even when our desires go to the wrong stuff, you are good and you're kind. And you've given us new life and a guarantee. So Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit you'd help us see that. When we feel weak, when we feel tired, when life doesn't make sense and temptation is all the more difficult to resist, would you help us to see your goodness? Would you help us to see who you are and for us to find joy in you? And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.